topics. Sermon series, you'll remember, we started that prior to Lent. That was questions from the congregation uh, that we could search the scriptures and find answers to. We paused that series for Lent. Now we're back onto it. I'm, I'm kind of catching up with questions I got a while ago. Uh, I'm guessing this series will stretch out through May and maybe June, and then we'll be done and move on to something else. This morning, in this one sermon, I get to respond to two different questions that I received, two related questions. Uh, someone asked me if I would please preach on the topic of spiritual warfare, which I am glad to do and will do this morning. A different person, in fact, one of the children that comes up here up front on Sunday mornings asked the question, you might remember uh, they asked it during a children's message, where did Satan come from? Remember when that thoughtful young person asked that question? I'm going to try to tackle both of those questions, spiritual warfare and where did Satan come from this morning. But before I do, let's pray together and ask for the Lord's help. Holy Father, thank you that we've come now to this part of the week when we get to gather together at your table and feast off your word. Uh, we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And so I pray that you would feed us and nourish us and strengthen us this morning. Uh, we do believe that there is such a, th- such a being as the enemy of our souls. And we, we want to take your word seriously when it talks about him. We don't want to be afraid or cower, but we do want to be realistic in our understanding of who our enemy is. And so I pray you'd guide us, guide our thoughts and our minds and our hearts as we think about that. And give us courage and strength and joy uh, in our labors. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, well, this morning we're going to walk down a scriptural path. Normally when I preach, I just pick one passage and preach, just focus on that passage and there's enough there to focus on. But this morning uh, we're going to walk down a scriptural path. We're going to kind of Bible stepping stones. We're going to go from one stone to the next as we think about spiritual warfare. Uh, Before I do that, though, I want to recount for you a conversation that I used to have regularly, multiple times a week, every week. It was with one of my children when she she was quite little before we moved here to Alberta. Uh, It would happen in the middle of the night, uh, usually like two in the morning, and this child would be calling for me, and I would go into her room, and uh, I would say, what's the matter? And she would say, I'm scared. And I would say, of what? And she would say, Satan and robbers. (laughs) Same conversation every time. Same bad guys every time. And I'd say, well, honey, you, you know that your dad is right across the hall, right? And you know that I will protect you from any robbers. And even more important, God is always with us. And who do you think is stronger, God or Satan? God. That's my daughter speaking, answering, God. And I'd say, right. And do you think that God will protect us from Satan? She'd say, yes. And I'd say, do you think that you can go back to sleep now? And she would say, no. (laughs) And I'd say, why not? And she'd say, because I'm still scared. And I'd say, of what? She'd say, robbers. You see, if you follow her logic there, she knew God could handle Satan. She was maybe less sure that her dad could handle robbers. She was probably right on both counts. 
I've never had my strength tested against a robber, uh, but there is no question that Satan is no match for God. No question. Oftentimes, Christians have the mistaken impression that Satan is the opposite of God. That is not true at all. In fact, that is blasphemy. God does not have a counterpart. There is no uncreated, all-powerful being except God. God has no opposite. There is not the opposite of God. No such thing. The opposite of Satan, what would you say? Well, the opposite of Satan is what? It's not God. The op- if, you, if you need an opposite of Satan, the opposite of Satan is Michael, the angel Michael. Those are the opposites. Not God. Both Satan and Michael, the angel, were created by God. Satan is an angel, a created spiritual being. Created. There was a time before. There was a time when he was not. Not true of God. God always was, always is, always will be. Not Satan. He's created. He's a created spiritual being, an angel, like the angel Gabriel, like the angel Michael. Except that the angel Michael is faithful and good, and Satan is rebellious and bad. Both angels. In Genesis 3, we get a first look at Satan, our introduction to Satan. He appears to Eve in the form of a serpent. But the question that we all want to ask, and the question which that uh, curious and thoughtful young person asked during that children's message was, what's he doing there? <laughs> what, what, where did he come from? Why, why does Satan show up in God's good garden? Why does an evil serpent show up ten- tempting humans? In order to answer that question, we're going to begin our walk down this scriptural path. By turning, not to Genesis, not right away, we're going to turn to the book of Isaiah, to a text that I believe gives us a flashback into Satan's origin story. And so if you have your Bible, you can turn to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah, if you go to the Psalms, you're going to go right from the Psalms, and we're going to turn to Isaiah and chapter 14. Isaiah 14. I'm using a pew Bible, and that's on page 564, if you're looking for it. Isaiah 14, and I'm going to start on verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You've been cast down to the earth, you who were once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. And I will stop there. There's a similar passage to that in Ezekiel 24. Eight. We won't turn there right now, but it's similar. And in both cases, what the theologians tell us is that those passages give us a little glimpse into the origin of Satan, who is the prince of darkness. And the first thing we notice is that he wasn't always the prince of darkness. Right? In fact, when he was created, he's referred to in this Isaiah passage as the day star. 
or the shining one, or the light bringer, or the morning star, depending on your translation. Or if in Latin, the word there is Lucifer, which is where we get that name for Satan. So we don't know all the details about him or about his origin, but we get some hints here. It would appear that this being, this angel, was especially beautiful, especially powerful, but was not satisfied with being under the authority of God. He wanted to be God, to be in control, and so he rebelled against God, and the result is that he was cast out of the presence of God. And not only this one being, but apparently a whole host of angels joined in the rebellion and were likewise cast out of heaven. Various passages in the Bible refer to the devil and his angels. That's the word used, the devil and his angels. The book of Judges, or the book of Jude, sorry. The book of Jude refers to angels who did not keep their proper positions of authority, but they rejected God and they were therefore cast out of heaven. Second Peter refers to angels that sinned and were therefore rejected by God. Revelation 9 refers to Satan and his angels with him. Right? So apparently, and again, we're piecing this together. It's like we're putting together a puzzle and we don't have all the pieces. The ones we have are, are part of the puzzle and they do fit, but we don't have all the pieces so we don't get a full picture. We get some of the picture. And as we piece together these pieces, uh, the ones that we do have, it would appear that the story runs something like this. This particularly powerful and beautiful angel rebelled against the authority of God, the Creator, and he rebelled against God because of his pride. And he was able to convince a significant number of angels to join him in his rebellion. They didn't want to be under the authority of God. And as a result, they were kicked out of heaven. And now, as a result of that rebellion in heaven, there is a war. A spiritual war between Satan and his dominions, his fallen angels, and God and the angels that have been faithful and true and good. And at least part of the battleground of that war, again, we don't know all the details, but at least part of the battleground of that war, where this war plays out, is here on earth. And that is why we find Satan in Genesis 3, an uninvited guest in the garden trying to thwart God's plan. And what is God's plan? Well, he created human beings in his image in order that we might be in a loving relationship with him under his authority, glorifying his name, and enjoying his creation. And now here's Satan trying to mess up that good plan. And so, let's turn to that passage, Genesis 3 and verses 1 to 5. Genesis 3 and 1 to 5 tells us this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, we, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, 
knowing good and evil. We'll stop there. That's the first time that humans are involved in this cosmic war. And it happens shortly after God has created us. And, the, and let's be clear, the war isn't really at its root. It's not really between us and Satan. It's between God and Satan. But since God created us in his image, well then kind of by default, Satan is our enemy too. And while Satan knows that he cannot destroy God, one strategy that he has for attacking God is by attacking his beloved creation, us, we who bear the image of God. And in a minute, we're going to consider the tactics that Satan uses. For now, we're simply observing that there is, in fact, a spiritual war going on between God and the evil one. And even though we didn't start this war, we didn't ask to be a part of this war, nonetheless, we find ourselves very much in the middle of it, whether we like it or not. That is our status. That is our situation. Right? We're in it. I, I, I was thinking about that this morning and thinking, I think one of the reasons that those, those books that Tolkien wrote, The Hobbit and The Fellowship of the Ring, are so popular is because that's the situation of the main characters. And we identify with that, right? When you, like Bilbo or Frodo. They didn't want to be in it. They didn't ask to be in it. They're just little hobbits and they like being at home in the Shire and having all the comforts of, of just home life and quiet life. They don't want to be in it. But they're not asked whether or not they want to be in it. They're in it. They're part of it. So they find themselves in this impossible situation and they have to deal with it. They have to be strong. They have to be faithful. They have to follow the path and follow the plan. And I think the reason everybody loves those stories is because that mirrors our actual real situation. We didn't ask to be in it, but we're in it. Right? S Satan, Satan is going to do everything in his power to get us to reject God. Everything in his power to get us to rebel against God's authority, just the same way that Satan himself rejected God and rebelled against God's authority. And it's not because he's so interested in us personally. Let's not flatter ourselves. It's because he hates God. And he will do anything to undermine God's authority. And I know that most of us would prefer not to think about such things. But here's the thing. Ignoring them doesn't make them go away. If we are engaged in a war, and if there is such a being as the enemy of our souls, and there is, then it's best that we know about it. I'm reminded of uh, the words of Winston Churchill. Uh, it's a speech he gave. It was October 29, 1941. If, if you know your history, then you'll recognize that date. The World War II is already going. It's been going for two years. And he is speaking at a boys' school. And the most memorable, oft-quoted lines from that speech, maybe you'll recognize them, he said this to those boys gathered in that auditorium. He said, never give in. Never give in. Never, 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 never. In nothing, great or small, large or petty, never give in, except to convictions of honor and good sense. Never yield to force. Never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of your enemy. Okay, he went, it was a longer speech than that, but that's what often gets quoted. At that time, again, if you know your history, by that time, France had already fallen to the Nazis. 
Russia was currently under a, a massive German invasion. The U.S. had not yet entered the war. Pearl Harbor had not yet happened yet. Britain was standing basically alone against the Nazis. And the outcome of the war at that time was genuinely in doubt. Now, we know what happened, but at the time they didn't. They didn't know. In fact, it was looking like Germany had all the momentum at that point. And you got to remember, Winston Churchill for that speech was speaking to an auditorium full of boys at a boys' school. Those boys that he was speaking to, most likely within the next one to two years, would be facing bullets themselves as soldiers. And what I find instructive to what he chose to say to them is that he didn't speak words of consolation or comfort. Did you notice that? Right? He didn't say, well, don't worry because everything's going to be okay. He didn't say that. What he gave them was a stirring exhortation. Never give in. It's not peacetime. It's wartime, and we must never give in. That's what he said. And according to the Bible, that is our situation. It's not peacetime. It's not. We're at war right now. Right now with the real enemy, and we must never back down, and we must never surrender, and we must never, never, never give in. War is not a metaphor for the spiritual reality that we experience. It's what it is. We are at war right now, according to the Bible. If we don't believe that we're at war, we will be ill-prepared for what's coming. In war, conflict, hardship, risk, suffering, those are all normal. That's what happens in war. The Bible tells us that all faithful followers of Jesus should expect those things because we're at war. Not with other people, not with other countries or human beings. We're at war with the powers of darkness, with the evil one. Now, now listen, prior to World War II, Churchill was continually warning Britain of the growing German threat throughout the 1930s. Well, in the 1930s, when Germany was rebuilding from World War I and reassembling their army and reassembling their arsenal, Churchill was saying, look at what they're doing. We should be worried about this. We should say something. We should do something. We should stop. This is not going to go well. And nobody wanted to hear that. Nobody. Everyone said, well, look, we just got done with World War I. That was the war to end our wars. We're not doing it again. Don't worry. It's not going to happen. It's not a problem. We're okay. Settle down. Stop being a warmonger. Right? And Churchill said, no, 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 no. You don't, you, you don't get it. The threat is real. They're rebuilding their army as we speak. And they said, no, no, no. We don't want to hear that. Don't you understand? We have a whole generation of people who are wounded from World War I, who are scarred. You can't talk like that. It's upsetting them. And so... Prime Minister Neville, Neville Chamberlain, 1938, goes to Germany, meets with them, says, what are, you, what are you about? What's going on here? And they said, don't worry, we're, we're fine. Right? Every country needs an army. We're just building up an army. Don't worry about it. And so he signed a peace agreement with them. He came back to Britain waving it in his hand, shouting, peace in our time. It's all good. I got that guy Hitler, you know him? He's all right. I got him to sign this piece of paper, so we're good. That was 1938. A year later, Germany invaded Poland. 
And the war was on, and everybody said, oh, wait a minute, we should have listened to that guy that told us that there was a threat on the horizon. As Christians, there is no excuse for us to get caught unprepared in this war. The Bible is full of warnings, is full of exhortations about the spiritual warfare that we are engaged in. If, 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 if you don't think we're at war, if you don't want to hear me talk about we're at war, you think that that's wrong, uh, let me just tell you, you're not disagreeing with me. You're disagreeing with the Bible, because <laughs> the Bible says it loud and clear. And we'll just go to one passage, and we'll see where this is explicit. So turn with me to Ephesians in chapter 6. I know we're doing a lot of, a lot of flipping around, but Ephesians in chapter 6. And I'm going to read just two verses, verses 12 and 13. I'll give you a second to get there. Ephesians 6, 12 and 13. This is Paul speaking to the church and telling us how it is. And he says this, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We're not fighting other people. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. All right, so how, let me ask you this. Clearly, we're at war. That's what Paul says. How does the fact that we're at war, how does that square with the idea that Jesus is the Prince of Peace? Right? Well, here's the thing. Jesus came to earth to make peace possible between a holy God and sinful humans. He's the Prince of Peace. He established a way for sinful humans to be restored in our relationship with a holy God. He also came to establish unity between the redeemed people of God. Every ethnicity, every background united by the Spirit as the people of God. Restored. Peace. But His arrival on earth did not establish peace on earth. Not yet. Jesus did come proclaiming the kingdom of heaven. His kingdom has been advancing for the last two millennia, and it will continue to relentlessly advance. We heard about the advancing of the kingdom this morning with what was shared. The kingdom is going forward, and it will continue to go forward until the full number of saints have been rescued and brought into God's family. And we know that the gates of hell will not prevail against that. And one day, peace will be established over the whole earth. And Satan will be cast into the outer darkness forever. But for now, the devil and his angels are at war with us. And how is that battle being waged? Well, lots of ways. I'm going to list four right now. Four ways that Satan attacks us. These definitely aren't the only four. But they are four common tactics of our enemy. Number one, temptation. Satan tempts us to sin by trying to make rebellion look appealing, tempting. Trying to make obedience look like a burden rather than a blessing. 
We saw this tactic right away in the garden, right? Adam and Eve have a clear law from God about not eating fruit from a particular tree. There's Satan raising questions, trying to make obedience look like a burden and to make disobedience look appealing. And he still employs that same tactic today, constantly trying to turn morality upside down, right? You, you, you actually take God, God's commandments seriously? Are you kidding? Haven't we outgrown those rules? They were written in the Bronze Age, right? They're not relevant today. Don't we know better now? God's rules are just, they're unfair. They're oppressive. Real joy, real freedom comes from just being yourself and breaking those old rules and doing whatever you want, right? Isn't that what he says? That's the definition of temptation. Satan's been using that tactic from the very beginning, right? Saying obedience is a burden. Rebellion is a blessing. He's flipping morality on its head, saying the opposite of what's true. And the way that we fight against that is that we don't stand around and debate, right? Temptation isn't rational. You don't beat it with words. The Bible tells us to flee. Flee temptation. Run away from it. There's another passage in the Bible. We don't have time to turn there, but it tells us whenever, whenever God allows us to be tempted, He always provides a way out. Always. Whenever you are tempted, there is a door. And you can get out, but you have to flee. So the way we fight temptation is by fleeing from it. The second way that Satan wages his war is by accusing. Accusing us. Right? Revelation 12 refers to him as the accuser. And in that, in that verse, it says he accuses us day and night, all the time, nonstop. If... If, if you hear a message of accusation and, and condemnation day and night, sooner or later, you, you're going to start to believe it, right? It's like that child who's told over and over again he's no good, right? We know it. That's not true. But sooner or later, if he hears that over and over again, he's going to start to believe it. He's going to start to think, well, maybe I am no good. Simply because he's heard that message over and over again. So what are we to do in the face of these accusations. Well, you fight false accusations by speaking the truth to lies. When the accuser says, you're no good, you failed again, you're a hypocrite for calling yourself a Christian, what is he trying to do? He's trying to make you feel guilt. He's trying to make you feel shame. He's trying to break your fellowship with God, right? To drive you away from God. That's his goal. And we need to respond by speaking truth to those lies and saying, no, 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 no. God loves me with an unconditional love. I am the object of the affection of God Almighty. And yes, it's true that I failed again, because I do that. But there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not die but have eternal life. And I have believed in him. And by grace, through faith, I am a child of God. And I am therefore not condemned or separated from God, even though I still sometimes fall into sin. And suddenly those accusations lose their force. And those feelings of guilt and shame are lifted from us, and we're able to carry on and keep fighting. The third way Satan wages his war is just by, by flat-out deceiving us, telling lies. He's the father of lies. Think of it like this. Here's, here's a way to picture 
how, how Satan weaves these lies. If you, just picture a sundial, okay? You picture not an old, old, old-fashioned sundial. Now picture it at night, right? You look at it. You have no idea what time it is. It's dark. There's no shadow. It's useless. Now imagine someone comes along with a flashlight. Says, hey, look, I'll tell you what time it is. They shine the flashlight on the sundial. They can make it say any time they want. Right? Hey, look, it's 11 o'clock. See where the shadow is? And you say, well, look, I don't really know what time it is, but I'm pretty sure it's not 11. And he says, fine, what time do you want it to be? <laughs> I can make it be any time you like. Those are the kind of conversations that Satan engages in. And do you notice that he does it at night? Right? And then the sun comes up, and what happens? It lights up the whole face of the earth, including that sundial, and all of a sudden you can see what actual time it is. And of course, Satan is going to try to stand in the way of the sunlight and throw his shadow over the sundial, but then you can tell him, look, he's not welcome here, and he needs to leave, and you don't need his help figuring out what time it is because you have this bright, shining, immovable object in the sky. And it will shine on the sundial, and it will tell us the accurate time as the earth orbits the sun. See, that is exactly how God's word functions in our life. That is exactly how we defeat the lies of the evil one. Not by our own powers of intellect or persuasion or argument, but by the immovable, unshakable truth of God's word. Right? God's word doesn't move and it shines on our life, and it tells us what's true, and it defeats the lies of the evil one, right? God's word is like the sun in the sky, and Satan's lies are like a little flashlight that he holds. Who wins that battle? God does. Finally, in this spiritual warfare, ultimately, the ultimate tactic that, that, that the Satan uses to, in, his, in this battle is he, he tries to devour us. That's less subtle, that's a subtle, that's a more aggressive tactic. In 1 Peter, Satan is referred to as a roaring lion who wants to devour and consume us. In Revelation 12, he's referred to as a devouring dragon. In fact, we can, we'll finish out our time by looking at that passage. Romans, uh, sorry, Revelation 12 and verse 9. This will be our last one. Revelation 12 and verse 9. We saw the sat uh, Satan in the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 3, as a serpent. Now we see him as a, as a dragon. Revelation 12 and verse 9, The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. All right, so how are we supposed to respond to this beast that wants to devour us? We respond to that by standing firm. Now, you might hear that and say, wait a minute, I thought we were supposed to flee. <laughs> we're supposed to flee temptation. Now you're telling us to stand firm. What's the deal? Well, it's true. We flee temptation, right? We don't stick around and argue with temptation. We flee. We take the door that God gives us and we get out but we stand firm and stand up to the devil and his fallen angels when they seek to devour us. First Peter tells us to resist the devil. That means stand up and stand firm. Don't back down. Don't cower. Don't be afraid. Never, never, never give in. He might be more powerful than you, but he's not more powerful than the one who's in you. That's the thing. 
park rangers who have uh, studied lions in the wild, like, Af like in Africa, they'll tell you, never turn your back and run from a charging lion. Lions are, 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 are accustomed to their victims fleeing, right? They're chasing and the victim is fleeing. That's how it works. Standing firm and facing a lion bewilders it and confuses them. And in most cases, I'm told, a charging lion will stop and turn away if you stand up to it. Now, it's, it's that phrase, in most cases, <laughs> that would give me cause for alarm. <laughs> if an actual lion was charging me, I'm, I, I'm, I'm sure that I'd be thinking, well, I sure hope this isn't one of those cases where the lion just runs up and eats me. But in the case of standing up to the devil, we know that we're safe. We know that we will be victorious. How do we know that? Because it's not our own strength that we're relying on. In Ephesians 6, right before Paul talks about the individual pieces of the whole armor of God, he says this. You don't have to look it up. I'll read it. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Right? Our strength is in the Lord and in his might, and therefore we can stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, does that mean that nothing bad can ever happen to us? No, of course it doesn't mean that. Right? Bad things happen all the time. We have a big, strong, powerful enemy. We're at war with him. He's tempting. He's accusing. He's deceiving. He's trying to devour. Of course, we're going to get hurt along the way. Who ever heard of a war without casualties? No soldier ever says, oh, I'll go and fight for you if you promise nothing bad will happen. If you promise I'll come home safely. Right? That's not how war works. We don't get that promise. What we do have is a promise from God that everything will turn out well ultimately. How can he promise that? Well, because it was never a fair fight from the beginning, remember? Satan's not the opposite of God. Satan's no match for God. Right? God can take, even the things that feel like victories for Satan, God can take those things and use them for his purposes. Right? Like, for example, Jesus' death on the cross. Felt like a victory for Satan in the moment. But God can take that and use it for his purposes, like taking the atoning blood of Jesus Christ and applying it to his people to secure the forgiveness of our sins. Right? So we engage in this battle knowing that even though there will be trials, there will be hardships along the way, but our ultimate victory is assured because we are in the Lord's army. And the way that we fight this war is by fleeing from temptation Resting in grace in the face of false accusations. Speaking truth when we hear lies. And standing firm in the face of our enemy. One final thing. Some people right now, I know, are thinking, wait a minute. He preached a whole sermon on spiritual warfare. And he didn't talk about casting out demons. He didn't talk about demonic possession. He didn't talk about bondage breaking. He didn't talk about any of those exciting things about spiritual warfare that, 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 that make the Christian life look like a Marvel movie or something, look so exciting. Well, that's right. I didn't talk about those things. That's because I have very little to say about those things. And it's also because I think that people who fixate on that particular aspect of spiritual warfare miss the main point. So do I believe in demons and demonic possession? Absolutely, I do. You'd have to deny an awful lot of very clear scripture passages 
in order to deny demonic possession. It happens. I've witnessed one example of demonic possession in my life, and I never want to see it again. Never. Do I believe that a Christian can be possessed by a demon? No, I do not. No. The Bible teaches that if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation, the old is gone, and the new has come. I don't think that demonic possession is compatible with the new spiritual reality that takes place when the Holy Spirit comes to live in someone's heart. But the reason that I didn't spend my time this morning talking about demonic possession or exorcism or bondage breaking is because I think that people who go around looking for a demon behind every closed door and who are forever casting out evil spirits and breaking bonds are simply missing the main point of what spiritual warfare is all about. I believe that the primary tactics of the evil one are to make us feel separated from God and to make us feel alienated from one another. And he does that by tempting, by accusing, by deceiving, and trying to devour. And I also believe that we have all the power we need to stand up to him and to fight the good fight of faith. And we have the sure promise that one day God will definitively deal with the devil and cast him out forever, and peace will be permanently declared, and we will be in the presence of God forever. That is our hope, and that is God's promise to us. Let's pray. Holy Father, the fact is that we are in a war that we didn't ask to be a part of. I, I know, I, I, at the very least, I speak for myself when I say I didn't ask for this. I don't want to be in a war. I don't like the idea of being in a war. I don't want to fight. I don't want to have an enemy. I don't want any of those things. I didn't ask for them. But this is the situation that we find ourselves in. And I know this beyond a shadow of a doubt, that you are good, that you are powerful, that you are our king and our creator and our captain. And I will go where you lead. Even if you lead me onto the battlefield, I'll follow you. Even if you lead me into a place that feels unsafe, I'll follow you. Even if you lead me into a place where I feel overwhelmed by forces that feel stronger than me, I'll follow you. But Lord, I need your promise that you will go with me and that your power is greater. And that I can stand firm in the strength that you give, in the might of the Lord. That's the only way I'll go out on that battlefield, Lord, is if I know that you're with me and that I can stand firm in your strength. And I can know that because that's the very thing that you promised in your word. And so, Lord, I pray for all of us that you would help us. Sometimes the battle feels far and distant and unreal, but I know that's a lie and that's a deception. It is real and it's near and it's here. And so I pray that you'd help us to see it and to fight to fight. I pray that you'd help us to flee temptation, not play games with it, but get away from it. I pray that when the accuser speaks lies to us about our status as your children, that you would help us to silence those lies with grace, with promises, with the sure knowledge that we are your children, and that you love us, and you will never leave us, and never forsake us. I pray that when the evil one speaks lies and tries to deceive tries to shine his little flashlight on the sundial, that you would shine with the brightness of the sun, with the truth of your holy scripture, and that that would be our anchor, our unchanging and sure anchor. 
And when he tries to devour, Lord, may we stand. Give us straight spines and strong legs. And may we stand, not in our strength, but in yours. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.